Luke 19, 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay him back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you again. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. And I want to give you a few details before we jump into uh, the sermon. As you know, we've been in a, in a season of not gathering, but as Calvin mentioned, uh, that is about to change. Uh, we met with a, an advisory committee of experts uh, from our civic uh, around the city, educational, and also medical uh, thought leaders, and we listened to them. And then the, uh, we've been monitoring local case numbers. And, and currently in Abilene, there are seven COVID cases, and in the hospital, currently no one is there, no, no COVID patients. Um, and we also sent out a survey uh, to hear your perspective on when you're ready to come back. And I want to share with you some of those results. 26% of those surveyed are ready to return with no restrictions. About 60% are ready to return or would return, but they want specific restrictions in place. And about 14% of us are not ready to return until there is a vaccine or a proven therapy for COVID-19. And we completely understand that 14% perspective. Therefore, the elders at Highland, based on all of that wisdom that's been shared, uh, prayer and by the guidance of the Spirit, have decided that we will be regathering here at the building beginning June 28th. And there's going to be three expressions of gatherings. And I want to tell you just a little bit about those three expressions. The first is what we're going to call word and table. It will gather at 9 a.m. Um, it will be about 45 minutes long with recorded music, but no singing. And if you would like to attend, masks will be required to be in the worship space. At 11 o'clock, we'll have a blended service, much like we have uh, during the summer, of a cappella and instrumental worship. It'll be about um, 55 minutes long, and there will be singing. Masks are strongly recommended for that service. And then we will continue to have an online streaming service of both services uh, for our members who are not able to attend in person. And because of our commitment to those that uh, cannot attend in person, there's going to be a few changes in our auditorium, and it's going to feel a little bit different, but that's because we're trying to accommodate their worship experience as well. Now, you may have grown up like I did in a tradition that has a commitment to showing up at church. 
Uh, when I, the church that I grew up on in, if you were gone three weeks in a row, you were either dead or you moved away. Those were the only two options. And some of us probably still have that compulsion that exists inside of us. And I want you to know it's okay. It's okay right now if you need to worship at home, if that's the best choice for you. We absolutely understand and we completely support that decision. There's a few other details that I want you to know about. I'm going to mention them very briefly, but uh, you're going to receive an email this week that'll give you uh, more things in depth. Uh, There's going to be no AC in the auditorium uh, while we gather together. This is to reduce airflow. Um, We're going to cool it down real cool before we start, but when people come in, we're going to turn the AC off. There's going to be no nursery or kids' church. Uh, Communion will be served in individual packets uh, that you'll receive as you come in, and the offering boxes will be available as you leave. Hand sanitizer is going to be everywhere, and masks are going to be available if you forget yours. And we're going to have as many doors as possible propped open. In between the services, we're going to go through this room and sanitize it as thoroughly as we can. And what we have right now in our current plans have needed to be flexible for the last three months, and that's going to be the way it continues to be. Uh, our plans may change as uh, the local situation in Abilene might uh, adjust, or if local or state, national uh, governments provide different kind of guidance, we're going to adjust accordingly. But I am so excited when we get to regather in this place on June 28th. We've been going through this series called Rolodex, and I want to remind you, if you go to highlandchurch.org slash Rolodex, uh, you're going to find more information and some resources in this sermon. And if you scroll down, you're going to find a, a PDF to download. It's a little bookmark, and if you haven't done that already, I want to encourage you to download that because you kind of fill it out as you go along. There's some thoughtful questions for you to reflect on, and, and maybe you can do that today at lunch. Um, think about those things. This week, we're talking about Zacchaeus. And if you grew up in church like I did, this is one of those tough stories to engage because you're so familiar with it. Everyone knows the story of Zacchaeus. Everyone knows the song about Zacchaeus. And so I want to try something a little different this Sunday. You know, I heard you can only visit Disneyland three times. Now, you can go as many times as you want, but you really only get three experiences. The first time you visit Disneyland, it's when you're a child, and everything is magical. The castle is huge. There's Mickey in real life form, and the rides are incredible. The experience is unbelievable. The second time you visit Disneyland is when you're an adult, and you see that the castle is really just this optical illusion to fool you. And you realize that waiting an hour and a half to ride It's a Small World really just isn't worth it. And you feel really bad for that poor kid in that foam suit in 100 degree temperatures and 95% humidity. And frankly, you don't really want to pay $15 for a churro. The third time you visit Disneyland is when you go with your kids or your nieces and nephews. You go with a child. And the castle's still fake. The foam suit still must stink, and that churro is way too expensive. But you don't care anymore because you're able to see it through the eyes of a little one, and it makes all the difference in the world. 
Today, I want us to, to visit Jericho three times. And I want to tell you about my trips there and a man I met named Zacchaeus. We're going to go along with Luke, by the way. He is an incredible tour guide. And both of his letters, Luke and Acts, are arranged geographically. Luke uh, begins in the boondocks of a region called Galilee and the Gospel of Luke. And he ends at the center of the Jewish world, Jerusalem. And then when he begins Acts, he starts in this kind of, this far off, cast off, governed region called Israel. But he ends in the center of the known Greco-Roman world, Rome. But what's so incredible about reading Luke and Acts is this um, literary technique that Luke engages called prosopia. And basically what that means is as Luke takes us, as we journey with Luke through regions, his language changes. It was as if we, we traveled to the bayou in Louisiana and we could hear that Cajun lit and, and energy in the sounds. And as we traveled up to the center of our known world, New York, you heard the harsh, sharp accent for the Bronx. The first time I visited, I went to Jericho, I was a child. I was about six years old. Luke and Mrs. B, my Sunday school teacher, took me by the hand and, and showed me around the city through a flannel graph lens I saw Zacchaeus. He climbed a tree, which to my six-year-old self made total sense. I mean, who doesn't love to climb trees? And Jesus comes by, and out of all the people in Jericho, Jesus tells Zacchaeus, you come down. Kick down from climbing that tree, because Jesus wants to come over to his house. And, and Zacchaeus gives half of his money away to the poor and gives uh, promises to give even more to the people he stole from. And Jesus is so proud and impressed with him. So I loved Zacchaeus. He was the kind of guy you just wanted to, to pick up and hug. After all, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. I mean, sure, he was the bad guy at first, but then he became the hero, and everyone must have been so happy that he chose to do good. And to my six-year-old self, Zacchaeus is a mascot. Now, mascots are cute. There's something to cheer on, but essentially they're, they're harmless, the second time I traveled to Jericho, I was in college. And this time, Zacchaeus wasn't the sweet and gentle mascot anymore. He seemed a little more like a reject. And I understood a little more about what Zacchaeus did for a living. After all, he was a tax collector, and a tax collector was a dirty job. Now, you might remember that show from Mike Rowe that he did a while back about dirty jobs. And, and what Mike was trying to do there was to to elevate the people that do the hard things, to do the tough stuff that we all are so grateful for but we don't realize, to give dignity to those kind of jobs. That is not what Zacchaeus is doing. Zacchaeus can't see because of the crowd. And that may be because the crowd is large, and I have no doubt about that, but I think it's because, honestly, the crowd really doesn't want Zacchaeus to see Jesus. For the crowd... Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to be the one who pries the Roman knee off of their necks. He's going to restore Israel to the golden age. And Zacchaeus honestly shouldn't be allowed on the same street as Jesus because Zacchaeus is a collaborator. 
Keith Lowe um, wrote this interesting book about Europe in the aftermath of World War II, and he called it Savage Continent. And, and a lot of the history books in the post-World War II era, they tend to focus on the, the rebuilding and the reconstruction and how, how Europe pulls itself out of total ruin. But what Lowe does in particular is focus on how terrible it was. It was a savage place. People starved. People weren't treated well at all. And in fact, he traces this very subtle line that the reason why Europe as a whole has become post-Christian is not so much the decimation of the war, but the failure of kindness and goodness in the post-World War II aftermath. One of the things he notes is how the collaborators, the ones who sided with Germany during the occupation, doesn't matter where they were, in France or Belgium, Poland, anywhere, were treated after they were liberated. And it wasn't good. He is aiding the people that are oppressing you. But Zacchaeus is not just doing it out of fear or to survive. He's getting rich. He is a thief and a liar and represents everything that his neighbors loathe in the world. And so in this story, Zacchaeus is climbing a tree. He's a full-grown man climbing the tree. But he doesn't care. It has to be incredibly embarrassing. But he doesn't care. Because his community already despises him, what does he have to lose? But he heard that this man that's coming, his neighbors have heard he's the Messiah, but Zacchaeus has heard something different. He's heard that Jesus is a friend to sinners and tax collectors. So maybe, just maybe, he might be one of Zacchaeus' friend too. And to the shock of the crowd and the delight of Zacchaeus, Jesus not only speaks to Zacchaeus, and I imagine that man hasn't been referred to on the street without somebody spitting or swearing after his name, he invites himself over to his house. And, and that might sound strange to our American culture, to invite yourself over is, is kind of rude, but my friend Acacia reminded me that in the African culture, when you invite yourself over to somebody else's house, what you're saying is that person is worthy. Jesus thinks Zacchaeus is worth sitting down to a meal with. The crowd complains. After all, doesn't, doesn't he know who he is? Doesn't Jesus know who Zacchaeus is? Zacchaeus is a reject. So maybe Zacchaeus isn't the mascot, that friendly little guy. Maybe he's the reject, but this is immediately problematic because does that mean that we should all be rejects? I read this article um, a while back that was called Seven Habits of Highly Mediocre People. And it's obviously a play on highly effective people. It's my kind of speed, honestly, if we're, if we're talking about how well we're going to perform. Uh, but he, the author has a few advices. The first thing you want to do is you want to zero task as opposed to multitask. Don't do a lot of things at once. Don't even try to do one thing at once. Just don't do anything for a while. One of the habits of mediocre people is failure. But my favorite was what he said. He said, judge people poorly because you want to give them a chance to prove or disprove your expectations. So 
Perhaps I misunderstood. Maybe I misjudged Zacchaeus. I mean, after all, Jesus doesn't offer one sentence to call him to repentance, not one word of rebuke or one letter of condemnation. Is is Zacchaeus the hooker with the heart of gold? Is he secretly this incredibly devout Jewish man who just happens to have this terrible job? He's this private follower of the Torah, quietly righteous despite his horrible reputation? I don't think that's the case. Christ in your life does not allow you the room to be a privately righteous person while publicly being part of a corrupt and damaging system that ruins the life of others. You cannot be with Christ and publicly evil. Who would Zacchaeus remind you of? It took me a while to figure this out, but on my second visit to Jericho, I figured out who Zacchaeus reminds me of. He reminds me of Larry Flint. Now, you may not know who Larry uh, Flint is. He's the founder of a smut empire called Hustler. He's, he's sort of like Hugh Hefner without the smoking jacket in the mansion. What was that song? Larry Flint, he was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. It is the death of Zacchaeus' theft and corruption which has left a wake of broken communities behind him that makes his response to Jesus so incredible. The Torah would ask a Jew to give 10% of their money to the poor, but Zacchaeus will give half. If you have wronged somebody else and you're willing to make restitution, you should give 20% above the cost of the injury. And if you're unwilling, it might be two or three times the cost of the injury, but Zacchaeus is going to give four times as much. And I I don't want us to get confused here. Zacchaeus is not buying his way back into heaven. He is not earning God's favor with his money. He is doing what people do when they experience the radical power of grace. We tend to view saving the lost as some sort of personal decision of one's spiritual or religious affiliation. But encountering Christ is so much more. Zacchaeus has to go back to work on Monday. And either he has to quit his job or dramatically change what he is doing, including everyone that works under him in Jericho. But he cannot remain the same. You cannot encounter Jesus in your living room and then return to the boring monotony of your sinful lifestyle. This is the power of the gospel working in a corrupt and broken world. And I want us to be careful about thinking about those around us as rejects. I don't think it's healthy for you uh, to begin to think of the reject in your entourage as you are traveling to heaven. When God looks at this church, he doesn't see any rejects. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he lists a whole series of wrongdoers who won't inherit the kingdom of God, but then he says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you are in Christ, that may be what you were, but that is not who you are. But I also wonder if God doesn't see any rejects around here because they don't feel like they're welcome. The haunting question Luke leaves us with at the end of this story is if too often we find ourselves in the crowd trying to shoulder out the people 
we don't think deserve or warrant God's attention, and therefore our own. I had the opportunity to travel with Luke and visit Jericho one more time this past week. You know, the first time I visited, I was, I was standing next to Zacchaeus watching him climb the tree. When I was in college, I, I visited again and I saw him, uh, but I was part of the crowd trying to shoulder him out. But this third time when I, I visited Jericho, I was walking with the disciples. I could see Jesus up ahead. And I understood clearly why Jesus noticed Zacchaeus. It was not just that he had climbed up in the tree. It was because of the peculiar hat Zacchaeus was wearing. It had bells on it. Zacchaeus wasn't a mascot, and he wasn't a reject. Zacchaeus was a jester, a jester like in the king's court. The jester had this special function in, 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 with the king's court. The jester was the one that could reveal the absurdity that everyone felt, but no one could say. The jesters we encounter in the world reveal the ridiculousness we find ourselves in. God puts them in our way, yelling out things like, the emperor has no clothes. And so there's two questions that I want you to think about today. First one is, where is the speck in your eye? The story of Zacchaeus flips the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be careful of the speck in somebody else's eye when you have the log in yours. But the story of Zacchaeus, what it does is it reveals the log in his eye so clearly, we can't help to see the splinter in our own vision. And maybe you're not responsible for the economic and social forces that grind black lives into non-humans. But is there a gut reaction in your heart? Maybe just a little bit of a faster pace in your chest when you see a black person walking down the street. That is a conditioned response. And the good news is you can uncondition that response. Where is the speck in your eye? Do you know the name? Do you know the name of the person that empties your trash at work? Is that person a human? Maybe you're not like Larry Flint creating a smut empire, but have you spent time dehumanizing women in your heart, in your mind? I don't think Luke places this story at this point in his gospel on accident. If you look just one chapter earlier in Luke 18, Jesus encounters a person we call the rich young ruler. And I want to compare these two guys, Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler. These guys are both rich. Maybe they even live in the same gated community. But that is where the similarity ends. If these two men met on the street, they wouldn't have one thing in common to talk about it. They're about as different from each other as you can imagine. Yet Luke puts them side by side. And at first glance, most of us would rather have the bright, well-behaved young adult as a neighbor than the dishonest, oppressive, no-good Roman collaborator. But Luke makes us look deeper. One has social power and prestige. The other has hate and rejection. One comes to justify himself before Jesus. The other embarrasses himself to see Jesus. Jesus calls one to give up his wealth. Jesus calls the other to dinner. 
and one leaves Jesus because he loves his treasure. But Zacchaeus leaves his treasure because he loves Jesus. These two guys might have lived in the same neighborhood, but their hearts were miles apart. And what I'm saying is be careful here. It sounds ridiculous, but I read this article uh, recently about the vague nature of the middle class in America. And it interviewed people that, whose net worth is over a million dollars. A million dollars. And they said they didn't feel rich, even though they had a million dollars in the bank account. They didn't feel rich because they knew people that were worth $5 million. And they couldn't keep up with those $5 million people. And so the, the journalist went to those $5 million people and said, hey, do you feel rich? And they say, well, uh, you know, I know people that wake, may wake way more money than me. And so I don't really think I'm rich. The extreme nature of the jesters in our lives become subtle and quiet excuses from our own perspectives. And this ruins the purpose that God puts this relationship into our life in the first place. And it, it twists it to suit our own self-justification. So who is the jester in your life? I used to go to the church with this guy named Roosevelt. And, and, and this dude had style and swagger like you wouldn't believe. He would show up one Sunday in a three-piece suit, decked out. He'd show up the next Sunday in a pirate costume. We loved Roosevelt because he was that jester. My favorite part of Roosevelt was his car. He had this giant 1990s Suburban. They'd hand-painted himself, and, and on the front of the Suburban, um, he had a whole row of hood ornaments. I mean, he started with a, a Ford, and then he went to Mercedes, then he went to a Barbie doll, and then a Transformer, and then a BMW signal, uh, a symbol. The Roosevelt used his car to make a statement about the, ridiculousness, the ridiculous links we go to somehow use a brand to give ourselves personal worth and value. Who is your jester? Who's pointing out the absurd to help you see the speck? The other question is, how is God calling you to be a jester? And I don't think in our world right now, you don't have to go overboard. The presence of authentic grace in a world of thieves and misfits is radical enough. It doesn't really matter if you've cheated God a little bit or a lot. It doesn't really matter if you feel like a misfit or a reject or sometimes it seems like you have bells on your head. You belong here. Jesus wants to come and eat at your table. And Jesus, Jesus knows your name. This week may you be filled with the Spirit. May you love your neighbor as yourself. Go in peace.